Welcome. Uh, this is AHM 13, the audio of the head and neck 13, the anatomy of the pharynx. This podcast is a brief one um, discussing the pharynx uh, as we've already considered the oral cavity and the palate. And after this, uh, the next podcast will be on the larynx. The adult pharynx is about 12 centimetres in length, extending as a tube from the base of the skull to C6, behind the nasal cavities, with a nasopharynx, an oropharynx, and a laryngo or hypopharynx. So a typical question is to ask where the esophagus starts, which is at the uh, bottom end of C6. Posterior to the orifices of the, uh, of the auditory tubes, the pharynx is widest at the base of the skull, narrowing at the palate, the so-called pharyngeal isthmus, and then widening again and narrowing when it gets to the esophagus. Above the larynx, the walls are not in contact, but below they are. The pharynx is only separated from the prevertebral fascia by a loose venous plexus, allowing it to slide fairly freely during swallowing. Laterally is the neurovascular bundle and the styloid process and the styloid apparatus. The pharyngeal plexus is formed largely on the middle constrictor muscle, and that's a mixed motor and sensory plexus. Now, the basic structure of the pharynx stays true throughout as four layers. It has a mucous membrane, a submucous layer, a muscular layer, and then the buccopharyngeal fascia. And some, like uh, the anatomist Cunningham in that uh, book, it's quite a good book, prefer the five-layer system as pharyngobasal fascia, the third layer between the submucosa and the muscles. So to reiterate, although we discussed this in the first head and neck podcast on the cervical uh, fascia, the buccopharyngeal fascia covers the exterior of the buccinator and the pharyngeal muscles. The pharyngobasilar fascia lines the interior of the muscular layer and attaches the pharynx to the base of the skull, filling in the space with the passage of the auditory tube and then attaching to the posterior nasal apertures, what we call the coami. And it fills in all that space between the base of the skull and the upper border of the superior constrictor origin. And we discussed that area uh, in the so-called sinus of Morgagni, and certain tumours may present in that way, occluding the auditory tube, interfering with the glossopharyngeal nerve. The muscles of the pharynx include the three constrictors and everything with pharyngeus in its name, amazingly. Stylopharyngeus, salpingopharyngeus, and palatopharyngeus. It's quite thin, actually, the three curved constrictor sheets with three small vertical supports. Now, the three constrictors originate in such a way that they overlap inferiorly, so that they're like three stacked flower pots. And if we're to reiterate, have a look at the base of a dried skull, if you can. The pharyngobasilar fascia 
keeps the nasopharynx open and starts at the pharyngeal tubercle where there's a midline pharyngeal raphe receiving all of the constrictors. The fascia, that's the pharyngobasal fascia, passes over the longus capitis and then towards the foramen lacerum to the petrous temporal bone in front of the carotid canal. And here it's only attached really to the cartilaginous part of the auditory tube and not to the bony skull. And then the sharp posterior medial pterygoid plate right down to the hamulus and then it swings across to join its fellow on the other side. Here the fascia is quite rigid and that keeps the nasopharynx open. The attachment creates a lateral recess so that the levator pilati muscle originating here is entirely intrapharyngeal. So we've got to discuss then these constrictor muscles. The superior constrictor. Now it's worth again I think examining the base of the skull so if you've got it there just keep it there. Look at the medial pterygoid plate and the upper part is sort of soft and rounded, houses the auditory tube and the lower end as you can see there is quite sharp and that sharp part down to the hamulus is the origin of the superior constrictor muscle. Now the pharyngobasilar fascia attachment ends here, but the pterygomandibular raphe attaches to the hamulus um, down to the mandibular foramen, so that effectively the superior constrictor origin continues down with it. The buccinator running forward, the superior constrictor running around and backwards, and running right down to the last molar tooth at the posterior border of the mylohyoid line. So the shape of the muscles that sweeps backwards is to have therefore some very vertical fibres running upwards to the pharyngeal raphe, but some transverse or horizontal fibres and some of the lower descending fibres, which are very vertical as well, but they're extending down as far as the vocal, um, the vocal folds, and of course, as we expect, inside of the middle constrictor. The gap between the superior constrictor and the middle constrictor is then plugged by the back of the tongue and the structures passing from outside the pharynx into the mouth. So in other words, stylopharyngeus, the glossopharyngeal nerve and the lingual nerve. Those fill in the space between the superior and middle constrictor. Above, as we've said before, the superior constrictor hangs off the base of the skull like a hammock, and above the superior constrictor is the ascending palatine artery and the levator pilati, with the, the tensor pilati somewhat external. So that's really just orientating yourself to what the superior constrictor looks like, fanning upwards, transversely and inferiorly. And then you've got the middle constrictor. There's, a, as expected, an effective gap but as we've said, between the superior and the middle constrictors, filled by the stylohyoid, which attaches to the lesser cornea of the hyoid bone. And that's deep to the hyoglossus, obviously. The middle constrictor arises from the insertion of the stylohyoid between the lesser and the greater cornea, or horns of the hyoid bone. And that's therefore an easier way to remember it. We, we could add, as expected, that some textbooks define the origin of the middle constrictor as in part from the lower part of that stylohyoid ligament. And it's like a, a flat sheet of thin muscle on its side. So it diverges backwards quite widely with vertically running fibres up and down the pharynx and horizontally running fibres between. 
and these all simply end in the median pharyngeal raphae. The uppermost fibres enclose the superior constrictor, and the lowermost fibres reach down to the level, as I've said before, of the vocal fold, and these are enclosed in their lower part by the overlapping inferior constrictor muscle. As I've said, there's a gap between the middle and the inferior constrictors, and that would then be closed by the thyrohyoid membrane, which is there to join the hyoid bone to the thyroid cartilage, as its name suggests. And that area walls in or fills in the laryngopharynx at the level of the piriform fossa or piriform recessus. And the structures passing here are the structures that pierce the thyrohyoid membrane, which we remember, hopefully, as the superior laryngeal vessels and the internal laryngeal nerve. Now, do you see how easy this is if you think of it that way and try to understand the overlapping superior, middle and inferior constrictors? So that leaves us the inferior constrictor. Now, I think it's better to think of this muscle as in two parts, both effectively named for their separate origin. There's the thyropharyngeus, and that arises from the oblique lamina or line of the thyroid cartilage. Now think of this as a muscle, if you like, in series, with its superior, the thyrohyoid. Inferiorly, it's separated from the ring of the cricothyroid muscle. So some texts say, not surprisingly, like last, for example, that the thyropharyngeus also arises from this ring of the cricothyroid. That's not strictly correct. And I think it's better to think of them as separate muscles, even though they have the same innovation. The inferior constrictor is the um, really outside enveloping muscle of the middle. And then the superior constrictor, with the other two muscles, the fibres are very divergent. And they have to be, if you like, like a boa constrictor for the pharyngeal phase of swallowing. Some of the fibres of the inferior constrictor can reach nearly as high as the pharyngeal tubicle at the skull base. The lowermost fibres are almost, in many cases, horizontal and edge-to-edge with the second part of this muscle, the cricopharyngeus. So this is rounded and thicker, and a horizontal muscle extending backwards from one side of the cricoid arch to the other around the pharynx. So we're separating the thyropharyngeus and the cricopharyngeus, effectively. Okay. And uh, really, this is a point where there's actually no raphae, so that its contraction at the top of the esophagus acts as a sphincter, as a real sphincter. Continuation inferiorly is actually with the circular coat of the esophageal muscle. And these muscle fibres are slow twitch without muscle spindles, and they're like those seen in the external urethral sphincter, so that they're always closed except for momentary periods of relaxation during deglutition. And that also explains why it has a different innovation from the other constrictors. This part here is the uh, beginning of the resistance to the passage of a gastroscope, and it closes to stop air being sucked into the upper esophagus as the intrathoracic pressure falls. So there's a reason for this kind of sphincter, not just preventing regurgitation. And beneath it, of course, is the recurrent laryngeal nerve and the inferior laryngeal vessels. We remember a branch of the inferior thyroid artery. And just to remind, the internal laryngeal nerve goes with the superior laryngeal vessels, which come from the superior thyroid artery. The recurrent laryngeal nerve runs with the inferior laryngeal vessels, a branch of the inferior thyroid artery. So just as a little reminder. 
The inferior thyroid artery, we recall, of course, is the major blood supply to the trachea and the upper one-third of the esophagus. And so it starts to be important in anastomoses of the esophagus or the pulled-up stomach, the so-called oranger or transhiatal esophagectomy performed for middle esophageal cancers. The inferior thyroid artery is actually a big artery coming from the thyrosubarcal trunk. It's the blood supply to the tracheoesophageal enlarge, as it's called embryologically at any rate. The outer surface of the pharynx is covered by a rather delicate epimysium, which allows it to expand, and that's then continued over the pterygomandibular raphae with that epimysium over the buccinator muscle. And all of this is loose areola buccopharyngeal fascia, which we've defined in an earlier podcast. So that's basically all you really need to know. Now, those who are astute, I think, recall that there's a space between the horizontal ring, that's the pull of the cricopharyngeus, and the more oblique disposition of the thyropharyngeus, the bits of the inferior constrictor, which leaves a little gap, the so-called triangle of Lamier, some books call it the Lamier-Hackerman triangle, or the dehiscence of Killian, as it's called, described in 1908, which is where a, a pharyngeal pulsion diverticulum may appear. And now just to divert on this, this is a pulsion diverticulum of cricopharyngeous spasm and incoordination. And actually, as I like to think of myself as a, a medical historian in parts, that hissence was actually described by Ludlow much earlier in 1769. There was a recent uh, South African study which suggested that in cadavers, I think there were about 58 cadavers examined in that study, that a true dehiscence is actually quite rare. And that has to do with the nature of the inferior constrictor overlap efficiency. The anatomy of the pharyngeal pouch, of course, lends itself to either an excision, which would be a stapled excision, or the possibility of dissecting the pouch and simply suturing it to the longest collie muscle. That was the so-called dolmet operation, which was done in the past. And these were the treatments for a pharyngeal pouch, which usually appears to the left in that Killian's dehiscence. The other option, if it's well muscularised, is to staple the false diverticulum to the real lumen. So that has also been done. So there are a number operative procedures for pharyngeal pouch. Now we mentioned these constrictors but we're also left with some vertical muscles of the pharynx and we recall these are the palatopharyngeus, the salpingopharyngeus and the stylopharyngeus, the pharyngeus group if you want to think of them that way. Now the palatopharyngeus has been described in the previous podcast with the soft palate musculature. These fibres of palatal origin pass downwards but are inside, that is, they're internal to the superior constrictor. The salpingopharyngeus is best seen in a sagittal head cut looking at the nasopharynx and that's the slender muscle which raises a ridge of mucosa around the back and the lower part of the pharyngotympanic or auditory tube and which then runs downwards and blends in the side of the pharynx with the palatopharyngeus muscle. The stylopharyngeus muscle, we recall, has some embryological significance because it's the muscle of the third pharyngeal arch, innervated by the nerve, which is the glossopharyngeal nerve. And it arises high up from the deepest part of the styloid process, 
crossing the lower border of the superior constrictor, but it's one of these structures that runs in front of the internal carotid artery and actually between the internal carotid artery and the external carotid artery. So it passes inside the middle constrictor muscle, it's inserted into the back border of the thyroid lamina and the side wall of the pharynx. The glossopharyngeal nerve, by the way, curves around its posterior border and the salpingopharyngeus is really, as we've said, the only muscle innervated by the glossopharyngeal nerve with its cell bodies for this muscular innervation located in the nucleus ambiguous of the brainstem. Now, looking at the pharynx holistically, the blood supply is rich. There's the ascending pharyngeal, the ascending palatine, the lingual, the tonsillar, the greater palatine, the artery of the pterygoid canal, the superior lemningeal, the inferior lemningeal. We can think about all of this, but it, it doesn't have the greatest clinical significance. What's interesting is that the venous drainage forms a pharyngeal plexus on the substance of the middle constrictor posteriorly near the pharyngeal plexus of nerves, and that can drain directly into the internal jugular vein. The lower part can drain with the inferior thyroid veins, which drains down into the chest, into the left brachiocephalic or innominate vein. And remember that the pharyngeal plexus can drain up into the cavernous sinus via the foramen ovale, an emissary vein, or sometimes by a foramen of Vesalius, which can lie between, in some skulls, the foramen ovale and the foramen spinosum. The lymph from this region passes to the retropharyngeal nodes and to the lower and upper deep cervical nodes. Now, the nerve supply is the one that people often talk about, certainly for exams. The usual mantra is that all the muscles of the pharynx are supplied by the pharyngeal plexus, except for the stylopharyngeus, innervated, as we've said, by the glossopharyngeal nerve. We remember the comment about the muscles of the tongue being supplied by the hypoglossal nerve except for palatoglossus. We can also add the caveat that the cricopharyngeus, which is part of the inferior constrictor, can also be innervated by the recurrent laryngeal nerve or can have an additional and even a sole nerve supply from the external laryngeal nerve. So there is some variation that is here. Certainly the inferior constrictor, its thyropharyngeus part, uh, is innervated by the external laryngeal nerve. And you'll see that. The cricopharyngeus and the upper part of the thyropharyngeus innervated by the external laryngeal nerve. And it may be this neural separation which can lead to some degree of cricoesophageal incoordination, cricopharyngeus spasm, a pulse from diverticulum and Killian's dehiscence, and therefore a pharyngeal pouch. The cell bodies of the pharyngeal plexus, that is between um, 9 and 10, between the glossopharyngeal and the vagus, are all, as I've said, located in the nucleus ambiguous. This plexus is formed by the union of the pharyngeal branches of the vagus and the glossopharyngeal nerve and the cervical sympathetic, uh, sympathetics. The glossopharyngeal aspect is a pure afferent and the pharyngeal branch of the vagus, we recall, carries some motor fibres from the cranial accessory as well as afferents. The mucosa of the nasopharynx is, of course, supplied or innervated by V2 via the pterygopalatine ganglion. I'd remind you of the 
podcast of the autonomic nervous system of the head and neck. I think it was AHN4. So the mucosa of the nasopharynx is supplied by V2 through the pterygopalatine ganglion and the glossopharyngeal nerve with the vollecula supplied afferently by the internal laryngeal nerve. The rest of the pharyngeal mucosa is supplied by the internal and recurrent laryngeal nerves. So it's a matter of going through those particular areas of the nerve supply. The blood supply, I don't think, is that important. The venous drainage is important because of the connection to the cavernous sinus. Of the pharynx, or the pharyngeal interior, we can divide this into a nasal, oral, and pharyngeal, or laryngeal part. And we should certainly revise the podcast, I think, on the soft palate, the uh, most recent one, as we can understand the nasal and the oral interior by a firm grasp of the soft palate anatomy. And um, I'll supplement the discussion of the hypo or laryngopharynx with a separate podcast, the next one actually, on the anatomy of the larynx. But these should all be studied and revised together as a set. Now, we don't need to say a lot about the nasopharynx. One can only really appreciate this anatomy with the sagittal cut of the head. So hopefully you've got access to one of those either prosected specimens or plastinated specimens uh, where the mucosa has been stripped away. And we need to reconsider this approach to the nose, which has been dealt with in an earlier podcast. Um, as I think I've said later on, we're going to expand our podcast system to a vodcast uh, channel uh, where the audio will be supplemented by graphics, drawings, live drawing to reinforce the audio anatomy. It'll be principally an audio, a didactic, like a didactic PowerPoint, but much more uh, uh, extensive, and with video cuts of procedures which demonstrate the anatomy. So these areas will be revised over and above the simple audio podcast. I'll be doing the head and neck completely again as an entire vodcast. Um Initially, I think we're going to move to the upper limb, uh, but then at the end we'll continue with the vodcast of the head and neck again. Now, to return to the interior of the pharynx, that's often a standardised question with a sagittal split prosected specimen. So it's important to familiarise oneself with this uh, view, but also often the pharynx is isolated in dissection, and then usually it's shown from behind or the larynx, the subject of the next podcast, is opened anteriorly. So these are the images or the views that you need to become familiar with, the sorts of archetypal views of the pharynx. But they're, of course, not those views which one sees uh, so much as uh, in surgery or in sepsis. The nasopharynx is something we've already studied, but we can recap it. And it should be restudied, as I've said, with the soft palate from our earlier podcast. The nasopharynx extends from the skull base to the lower border of the soft palate. It doesn't collapse along its posterior limit or laterally on its sides because of the rigidity of the pharyngobasilar fascia. The nasal communication is with the coani, and the soft palate forms its anterior wall. The part connecting the posterior nasopharynx and the oropharynx, that is, the space between the back of the soft palate and the pharyngeal wall, is called the oropharyngeal isthmus. And in a sagittal view, one sees the uh, pharyngeal tonsil, the pharyngeal recesses, and the area is somewhat dominated by the opening of the pharyngotympanic tube. 
pharyngeal tonsils, of course, the adenoids, which when enlarged in children, can block the back of the nasal part of the pharynx. The pharyngeal recess, also uh, called the fossa of Rosenmuller, is the narrow vertical slit behind the opening of the auditory tube extending above the upper margin of the superior constrictor muscle and that's filled by the levator palati and lies in front of the carotid artery. If you look at a specimen, you can see that recess extend to the base of the skull to become the sphenoethmoidal recess just below and in front of the sphenoidal sinus. And of course, it's the drainage point of that sinus and of the posterior ethmoidal air cells. So they're all connected. And this naturally leads into the superior meatus. The auditory tube lies in the lateral wall above the soft palate, but also at the same level as the inferior conker of the nose, and it's formed by a prominent rounded ridge, the torus, or the tubal elevation, which is partly tubal cartilage and also the lymphatic material, which is referred to there as the tubal tonsil. Now, part of this is bulged by the levator palati, and the torus lies in the sort of a shape of an inverted J, with the long limb of the J lying posteriorly and inferiorly, as we've already said, the salpingopharyngeal fold, covering the salpingopharyngeus muscle as it merges with the posterior pharyngeal wall. So hopefully this is orientating you, you can understand what we're talking about here. If you've got a book open on a sagittal split of the nasopharynx, that would help um, at this time. The attachment of the soft palate to the posterior pharyngeal wall is related to the palatopharyngeal arches and is what we've referred to as passivance ridge. The mucosa of the roof continuously covers the sphenoid, the basilar occipital bone, and the uppermost part of the longus capitis muscle. Now, if you were to carefully pull all of the mucosa off that and see the muscles above the palate, it's dominated by the levator palati, with the tensor palati deep and medial, and laterally is the upper limit of the superior constrictor muscle as it hangs off the skull base. Coming down in the sheet of muscle below the superior constrictor, you run into the merging palatopharyngeus muscle. And the mucosa of this region is ciliated, columnar, and respiratory in type. The oral and laryngeal parts, on the other hand, are non-keratinizing stratified squamous epithelium. And that's really all one needs to know about the nasopharynx. We've spoken about the meatuses and uh, various sinuses that have been draining into this region, and I refer you to the podcast on the nose and paranasal sinuses for that. The second area is the oropharynx that extends from the lower border of the soft palate to the upper border of the epiglottis. The wall posteriorly is comprised of all three constrictors with the tongue anteriorly and laterally. The ridges are the palatopharyngeal and palatoglossal arches, collectively the so-called pillars or fauces with, of course, the palatine tonsil between. We've discussed this in the podcast on the palate. The platoglossal arch is the boundary between the pharynx and the mouth. And here we have, as I've said, the palatine tonsil, the lingual tonsils, and the voliculi. The palatine tonsil we've already considered, but it's a large collection of lymphoid tissue in the tonsillar fossa between the palatopharyngeal fold behind 
and the Palato glossal fold in front. The floor of the fossa is formed by the superior constrictor, as you would expect, although there will be inside some fibres of the palatofringes. The lower part of this bed is crossed by the glossopharyngeal nerve as it passes under the lower border of the constrictor to get to the tongue. Effectively, the tonsil has then borders, poles and surfaces. The anterior and posterior borders lie adjacent to the palatoglossal and the palatopharyngeal folds, respectively, by definition. The upper pole extends as far as the soft palate and can actually infiltrate it a little bit there. The lower pole reaches as far as the dorsum of the tongue. The pharyngeal mucosa is perforated on its medial side by 20 or so crypts, and at the upper pole, a large one is called the intratonsillar cleft, which is really the remnants of the embryonic second pharyngeal cleft. I'll cover the embryology of this region in a separate podcast. The tonsillar capsule is the lateral surface, and that's really an extension of the pharyngobasilar fascia. Deep is the facial artery and two of its contributory branches, the ascending palatine and the tonsillar. And there may be a small semi-lunar fold between the upper pole and the palatopharyngeal arch, and there can be a similar inferior fold between the lower pole and the palatoglossal arch, although this usually disappears in fetal life as it's uh, really invaded by tonsillar and lymphoid tissue. And this ring of lymphoid tissue, the palatine, the lingual, the pharyngeal and tubal tonsils, form Waldia's ring at the upper end of the respiratory and alimentary tracts. It's a bit like an immune guardian. The blood supply, as we've already said, to this area is rich and complex. The main arterial supply is the tonsillar branch of the facial artery, which enters the tonsil, arching over the upper border of the styloglossus and piercing the superior constrictor muscle. There are also contributions from the lingual, the ascending pharyngeal and the ascending palatine and even the lesser palatine. One inch posterolateral lies the internal carotid artery. So it's not an uncommon question to ask what is the blood supply of the tonsil, and that's it. The veins, which are the uh, bug-bearing tonsil of bleeding after tonsillectomy, uh, form a little plexus around the capsule, and they drain through the superior constrictor into the pharyngeal plexus, (coughs) usually with one large brute coming from the uh, tonsillar bed, the so-called external palatine vein, sometimes called the paratonsillar vein, and that's the usual site of secondary or a reactionary hemorrhage after a tonsillectomy. And these can coalesce to form a large brute that enters the facial vein. Undue hemorrhage in a scissor excision here is usually not arterial, uh, which can occur if the tonsillar bed is actually penetrated into the substance of the superior constrictor muscle, although rarely small branches can be tortuous and superficial. So most of the bleeding is venous rather than arterial. And these little arteries should lie on the outside of the superior constrictor so that in theory they're less likely to be injured. In theory, the glossopharyngeal nerve could be injured if the lower part of the muscle is penetrated, but that's rare. And lymphatics from this region pierce the superior constrictor where everything seems to happen and they reach the deep cervical nodes and also, importantly, a so-called jugulodigastric node below the angle of the mandible, which can be the presenting node in a tonsillar cancer. 
the mucosa overlying the tonsil is supplied by the tonsillar branch of the glossopharyngeal nerve and also uh, via the lesser palatine nerves. Now the molecular, the area between the epiglottis and the posterior surface of the tongue, and so are separated by the median glossoepiglottic fold and limited inferiorly and laterally by the lateral glossoepiglottic folds. The nerve supply of the molecular mucosa along with the lowermost branches or reaches of the tongue is the internal laryngeal nerve. Very briefly, the laryngopharynx is obviously the third part there. The part of the pharynx extends from the upper border of the epiglottis to the level of the cricoid cartilage, as I've said at the bottom of the C6 vertebra, and that's the junction point, of course, for the cricopharyngeal sphincter and the start of the esophagus or the end of the pharynx. And the main thing here is the opening into the larynx, the laryngeal inlet or the additus, as it's called, and the piriform recesses on either side. The posterior wall here is formed by the three overlapping constrictors down as far as the level of the vocal folds, the upper border of the cricoid lamina, if you like, and that's the area of the Killian dehiscence, which we've already mentioned. The lateral glossopiglottic fold separates the oropharynx from the laryngopharynx. Below this fold is the piriform recess, or the piriform fossa, which is bounded medially by the laryngeal or quadrangular membrane below the aryepiglottic fold. The lateral wall of the recess is the thyrohyoid membrane above and the lamina of the thyroid cartilage below. And the lower part of the recess is the hypopharynx. So the posterior and lateral walls of the laryngopharynx are formed by the middle and inferior constrictors with the palatopharyngeus and stylopharyngeus, as we've said, internally. The inlet of the larynx forms the anterior superior wall with the arytenoid and cricoid cartilages inferiorly, a piriform recess extending forwards on each side, medial to the thyroid cartilage, and then the thyrohyoid membrane. The thyrohyoid membrane, we remember, is pierced by the internal laryngeal nerve and the superior laryngeal vessels, and these lie deep to the piriform recess. Similarly, the inferior laryngeal vessels and the recurrent laryngeal nerve enter the pharynx below the cricopharyngeal part of the inferior constrictor. Uh, there's a pharyngeal anastomosis, uh, but in the larynx they're separate with the vocal folds effectively being a watershed for the nerves and the vessels. And we'll get into that uh, when we're in the larynx in the next podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you.